I'd like to begin this morning by reading Genesis chapter 9. This is the end of the flood account. This is just after the flood, the story of Noah, the end of the story of Noah. I want to ask you to look for something as we read along. I want to ask you to look for Christ. Genesis chapter 9, verse 1 through verse 29. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the flesh of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is a sign of the covenant that I make between you and me, you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud, and that shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these three people of all the whole earth are dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see the nakedness of their father. When Noah woke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years, All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. And the Lord blessed the reading of his word. 
As we look at Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 and 7 have the same words. Verse 1 says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And verse 7 reads, And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And those two, those two phrases form what, uh, what theologians call an inclusio. It's like brackets around what's in between those two brackets. And we've heard these words before, haven't we? These are the same words of blessing God spoke to Adam and Eve in the garden. God created the whole earth and placed Adam and Eve in the garden and placed them uh, and called them, blessing them to be fruitful and to multiply and to rule over the earth. Then God decreated the world in the flood, it was the, which was the corruption or the corrupted of sinful, the world which was corrupted by the sinfulness of man. He did it in the flood of his judgment, but God remembered Noah in the ark. And God recreated the world and repopulated it with Noah and his family and all the animals. And then the question then is, well, so what's Noah to do now in this new recreated earth? And, and God tells Noah to do exactly what he told Adam to do. What we might call the creation mandate given to Adam, we can now call the cultural mandate given to Noah, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over all the earth. Same mandate, but a different context now. Since the fall and the flood, whenever man pushes, creation seems to push back. In the garden, Adam lived at peace and harmony with the other living things. Animals like, you know, lions, tigers, and bears. Adam didn't have any problems. But Noah and his sons will. And so God puts the fear of man into all the animals, and the birds, and the fish. That's why it takes skill to fish, because they fear the hook. Exercising dominion is going to be challenging and difficult, but it's there, right here in the text, into your hand they're delivered. That's the dominion part. So God establishes Noah as the new Adam in the recreated world with his blessing to be fruitful and to multiply and to exercise dominion over all the earth. Then verse 3. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat of the flesh while its life is in it, that is, its blood. You can't use the Bible, in other words, to justify your vegan diet. You can have a vegan diet. Go ahead. Just, just leave me alone. Okay? That's all. From now on, man can eat plants that don't move and animals that do move. God gives man everything for food that is good for food. And we need to see the gift of food as the gift of life. I'm giving you life. I'm giving you food to eat, to sustain you. God placed Adam in the garden, gave him this mandate, and then told him about all the plants that he could eat and all the fruit and the trees that he could eat. And now God's doing the same thing. We're still seeing creation replayed out, if you will. Noah can even eat meat. But not if it still has blood in it. Because the life is in the blood. And it's God who requires the blood. So Noah is not free to just kill and eat. Noah, when he kills an animal for food, is required to give the blood to God, to drain the animal of its blood, and then receive the meat back as food, the gift of life from God. That's why we pray, giving thanks to God when we sit down to eat a meal. He is the one who has given us food. It should be apparent to us by now in Genesis. There's a reminder here that life comes from God. And it belongs to God. 
Now, Noah is allowed to shed the blood of, of animals for food, but he's, he's not to do so lightly. That reminder that life comes from God. He's to respect life, even animal life. But no one is allowed to shed the blood of man. Man's blood is not to be shed. For Noah's lifeblood, God will require a reckoning. If any man is killed by an animal, God will require the lifeblood of that animal. And if a man is killed by another man, God himself requires the lifeblood of that man. And who will bring about God's justice for homicide? Man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. God is instructing human civilization to carry out his justice. More about that when we get to chapter 11. So why does God require a life for a life? Why does God say, in effect, if you kill, I will kill you? For God made man in his own image. He tells us right here. Here's the reason. For God made man in his own image. We need to remember that God just saved Noah through his judgment on all mankind. And we're waiting to see what life for Noah and his sons and all of future mankind is going to be like after the flood. And even after the flood, mankind still bears the image of God. Man's essential existence is as the image bearer of God, and it's not undone just because of the flood. And we need to see this. God's plan has always been for his image to be multiplied and magnified so that he would be on display throughout the whole earth. In creation, he gave Adam that mandate. In recreation, he gave Noah that mandate. But ultimately, God has given that image-bearing mandate to Jesus. He's given Jesus the mandate to fill the earth with his image and his glory. Ultimately, God has given Jesus dominion over the whole earth, hasn't he? God has made Jesus the ruler of this world. We know this from Psalm 2. We know this from Colossians chapter 1. And it is by Jesus' atoning blood that dead sinners are brought to life to fill the earth with the saving glory of God. We know this from Isaiah chapter 53. We know this from Romans chapter 3, that God is just and the justifier so that he would be seen as glorious and gracious in the coming days. What Noah is already doing here, making blood sacrifices to God, will be later explained in Leviticus. We see it here. It's going to be explained to us later. Now, remember, Genesis is just one of the five books in the Pentateuch. So the explanation's coming. But God requires blood or a life sacrifice to cover man's sins, which points forward to Christ's blood. The blood of the Lamb that takes away the sins of the world. We're being sensitized to that. So Noah points us to Jesus as the ruler of creation and the divine image bearer. Because Noah's mandate is actually Jesus' mandate, which is repeated in verse 7. Be fruitful and multiply and to have dominion. Just to be clear, Noah's covenant doesn't save. But Noah's covenant preserves mankind under the common grace of God, which is the context in which mankind will be saved. We're not judged at the time of our very first sin, and that's it. Out you go. Rather, we are given a lifetime, however many days it is, to look to Christ and be saved through his sin-atoning blood. Just as all who are in the ark with Noah were saved, so all who are in Christ by faith will be saved. And then God makes this, makes this commitment, this promise, beginning in verse 8. 
Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is uh, with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So God establishes his covenant with Noah and his offspring and every living thing that came out of the ark with him. Everything that was, in essence, saved through that judgment, preserved through that judgment. This is the first use of the word covenant in Scripture. It's a pretty important word. But as we've seen, it's not the first covenant. It's not the first promise that God has made. God gave Adam and Eve life and made a covenant of sorts with them in the garden. God provided them food for life. God blessed them to be fruitful and multiply. And God appointed them to be his priest kings to rule over his earth. Adam and Eve were to obey God's word. And if they did not, they would surely die. So those are the consequences of avoiding the covenant. After the flood, God established this same covenant with Noah. God saved Noah's life and his offspring and some of every living thing. And God reestablished the same covenant with Noah. Since the context has changed, now God is going to make some additional promises. It's not the pre-flood world, it's the post-flood world now. And this is probably a good time to say just a few things about covenants, since we'll, we'll see a few of them in Genesis and throughout the Old Testament. A covenant is a promise or a commitment of some kind. In chapter 6, God committed himself to save Noah from destruction. And he did it. That's the lovely thing about covenants with God. He did it because in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God committed himself to save sinners through the seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman hasn't come yet. But God has committed to save sinners through the seed of the woman, and he's doing it. That is God's one overarching promise for all of redemptive history, to bring glory to himself by his Son through a redeemed humanity. That's God's plan, purpose, goal. Uh, Craig Combs explains it this way. Craig was one of my instructors at NETS. He said, when God makes covenants, all God's promises are one. All God's plans are one. All God's purposes are one. And they are all in Christ. God has one great plan of salvation. It has many aspects, many parts, and it's revealed in stages and pieces, almost like a puzzle. But God does one thing. It's revealed progressively, but every installation is part of his one promise. So all God's covenants with man throughout all history, are they're like a snowball running downhill, and they're just growing in content and detail of his one great covenant. Even when we talk about the big categories, like the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, we're still saying that God has one purposeful plan in view, and it's Jesus. It was always Jesus. It was always through his shed blood, his crushed heel, if you will. It was always through his resurrection, his crushing Satan's head, and crushing sin, and crushing death on the cross. The New Covenant fulfills the Old Covenant. Everything God has said and done up to this point in Genesis chapter 9 sheds light on that one salvation through judgment. 
God's promise to send the seed of the woman to crush the seed of the serpent is the same as his promise to save Noah from the flood, is the same as his promise here in chapter 9 to never again flood the world, is the same as his promise to Abraham to make him a blessed and mighty nation, is the same as his promise to David that one of his descendants will sit on the throne forever, is the same as his covenantal oath to Jesus from eternity past to make him, his perfect son, his high priest, and king to rule forever. You see? One great redemptive purpose. And here in Genesis chapter 9, we see clearly its, its early installment. Here's one of these early installments to the covenant. And what is it? Well, never again will God judge sin and the earth by a flood as he just did. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that there won't be any judgment. 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 7, refers to God's word of judgment in the flood, and then he says, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Which means a couple of things. First, what we see in God's covenant with Noah is a preservation covenant. We see God's common grace. The Lord is patient in forbearing with sinful mankind. He's reserving judgment till the final judgment, when the earth is done and Christ returns to judge and establishes new creation. Second, it means that having preserved Noah, Noah here is the seed of the woman, the line that leads to Christ, Noah will never again have to fear judgment. God saved Noah through judgment and he's satisfied. The flood is not the final judgment, but it pictures it. And it points to it, which means it also points to the means of salvation through that judgment. It points to the ark, who is Christ. What we need to see is that God has made a covenant with Jesus to save. God has appointed Jesus to face his wrath and to carry the recipients of his favor, like Noah, safely through his judgment and bring them out alive. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20 tells us that being in Christ by faith is like being carried safely through the flood waters in an ark. And when Jesus brings you through, you're safe. At the height of the prevailing flood, when God said, I remember Noah, what he was really saying was, I remember Jesus. And Jesus, having come safely through my wrath, you who are in Jesus, will never face my wrath. And then God issues a sign. He's made a promise, he's made a commitment, now he's making an oath on top of that. He says, in verse 12, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. God seeks to assure Noah. God seeks to assure us by giving us a sign. A sign is like God taking an oath to comfort us with his complete assurance. God's wrath is satisfied, so he hangs up his bow, his war bow. This isn't ribbon tied in loops. This is his bow that he shoots arrows with. 
God's wrath is satisfied, so he hangs up his bow, his war bow, the weapon of his judgment, if you will. Having satisfied his judgment, he's at peace with us, and so he hangs up his bow. And when he sees his bow, he'll remember his covenant not to bring back the flood of destruction. He, he says the sign will re, be a reminder for him, right? But it's really a reminder for us. The rainbow is there so that we won't forget that God doesn't forget, so that we'll be assured. Noah has assurance that he's at peace with God on account of Christ. It's because God has a covenant with Christ that he's able to say, I have a covenant with Noah that I won't bring flood of judgment. I'm going to wait until Jesus brings judgment. Christ is the true possessor of the covenant, and God remembers him. And in Christ... He remembers us. Praise God. You see, when we look to the rainbow, we're meant to see not the past judgment, but the future judgment. Not the flood, but Christ's return. And know by faith that in Christ we have been spared from destruction. There's a war bow-shaped sign hanging over our heads that says, in Christ your judgment has already passed. Because Jesus is the possessor of that covenant, which is the promise of God. Pick up in verse 18. This is the really fun part of the story, right? The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. From these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So just as in the first section, verses 1 to 7, uh, just as it had an inclusio, you know, brackets at the beginning and the end, uh, this does too. This, this section that I just read began talking about the nations, and then it ends talking about the nations. There's a story of a drunk naked Noah in between these two brackets, and, and that story must have something to do with the nations. We've already got a clue here in the way that this is written. And there's another hint in the text. In verses 8 and 22, Ham isn't just Ham. Ham's identified as the father of Canaan, twice. It's supposed to pique our attention. And we know that later the Canaanites in the land of Canaan are the wicked people and the enemy of God and his people. Remember Moses' original readers. There's the Israelites on the the stormy Jordan banks, right? Getting ready to cross into the promised land. And who are they going to fight there? The Canaanites. They're about to cross Jordan's stormy banks to fight and defeat them and to take possession of their land so they're very aware of the evil of the Canaanites. 
We're clear at the flood that righteous Noah represents the seed of the woman, right? We understand that. That's how, that's how he's made his way through the flood. He's in the genealogy of Jesus in Luke chapter 3. He's there. Noah has three sons, and so everyone since the flood is descended from Noah and one of his sons. Also, the seed of the woman must trace its path through one of Noah's sons. Now, the wording in verse 20 seems to indicate that, that Noah's actually doing pretty well. He's not just farming the plants of the field for grain. He's, he's planted a vineyard. The image is that he's, he's created a garden in the new creation. A, a, a vineyard's a step up from corn and beans. And it seems Noah's the first to plant a vineyard and to make wine. Now, the tricky part of the story. We know how to think about a righteous Noah, but how are we to think about a drunken, naked Noah? Well, here are the facts. Noah drank too much of his wine, got drunk, took off his clothes, and passed out on the floor of his tent. There are no other actions are stated or even implied. Drunken, naked is enough. To be clear, the Bible condemns drunkenness. It's foolish. It's sinful. It's a shameful loss of control and a, and a desire of the flesh that opposes the desire to be filled with the Spirit. It's a sin. But the Bible doesn't take time to condemn Noah's drunkenness here. Why? Because the focus is not on Noah's drunkenness. It's on the response of Noah's three sons to his shameful state. Therefore, we can say the focus is upon the nation's. Noah's sons, upon their nation's response to Noah's shameful state. Now, the Bible doesn't take time to condemn, condemn Noah's shameful state, but the text makes it clear that it was indeed shameful by pairing his nakedness with his drunkenness. Remember, righteous Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed before God in the garden. But fallen Adam and Eve were naked and ashamed. Naked or uncovered equals, in Bible words, ashamed. They were, they were naked and ashamed and need, in need of covering, and so's Noah. The reality is that righteous Noah is also sinner Noah. He is truly righteous, but not of his own righteousness, but by the righteousness of Christ, which he has by faith. Noah and his sons and their wives all still have the propensity to sin even after the flood. If that were not the case, God would not have needed to make a covenant that he just made. But God knows that the intentions of a man's heart is evil from his youth. He already told us that earlier. So Ham walks in and he sees his father's nakedness, meaning he sees Noah's shameful condition and he gloats. Ham takes a perverse delight in seeing his old man like this. He's got one over on dad. And he immediately tells his brothers, so they can come in and gloat too. So they can take a perverse delight in seeing their father in his shameful, uncovered condition. But Shem and Japheth won't have anything to do with it. Without looking, they covered their father with a blanket. They responded with respect 
and honored their father. More than that, whether they knew it or not, Shem and Japheth acted the way God acted in the garden when he made garments and covered Adam and Eve's nakedness. Shem and Japheth sought to honor their father even though he wasn't perfect. Ham sought to dishonor his father as if he were perfect. That's the nature of Ham's sin. But I think it's more than that. Not only is Ham being smug and making fun of his father's condition, I think Ham's mocking his father's righteousness. Think about it. This man laying on the floor in the tent isn't any, just any father. This is righteous Noah. Blameless in his generation Noah. Walks with God Noah. And Ham says... Look at your righteousness now. Your righteousness isn't what it's cracked up to be, Dad. You call this righteousness? Is this all the good that comes from the righteousness of God? That's where Ham's going. You see? Ham isn't sinning just because he's dishonoring his father. Ham is sinning because he's dishonoring the very righteousness of Christ. He's mocking his father by saying, your righteousness from God isn't real righteousness. Which is what brings Noah's curse. Noah learns what happened and he has words for Ham. Did you notice that this is the first time that Noah speaks in the entire flood account? This whole long account, Noah's... Noah's been through the flood, spent over 100 years building the ark, and we finally hear him speak. And what are the first words that we hear from Noah's mouth? Cursed be Canaan. Why does Noah curse Canaan instead of Ham? We would expect Noah's first words to be, cursed be Ham, but it's Canaan. So Ham is, the text tells us, Noah's youngest son. Canaan, the text tells us later uh, in the lineage, is Ham's youngest son. Some will say this fits the law of retaliation that says the sins of the father will be visited on the next generation. Just kind of works its way down, sin does. Some say it's poetic justice. Uh, since it was Noah's youngest son, Ham, who wronged Noah, that it would be Ham's youngest son, Canaan, who would be cursed. But I think, it's, I think it's more prophetic than that. This small picture, small picture event is pointing us to a really big picture things. This interaction between Noah and his sons is really pointing us to the future of nations. And how the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent are still both in motion in the family of man after the flood. Both are still there. Craig Combs says it this way, All the nations of man are in these three sons, and the destiny of the peoples to come will be determined by their relation to the seed of the woman, who is Jesus Christ. In verse 26, Blessed be the God of Shem. Instead of blessing Shem, Noah identifies Shem, or the Shemites, or we would say today, 
the Semitic peoples as the people of God. He doesn't have to bless Shem. Shem's going to be the people of God. He blesses God. for the, He's the one that's going to bless Shem. And later on, we'll call, we'll call them Israel. So Noah blessed God, who will bless Shem, whose line will carry forward the seed of the woman. But cursed be Canaan and his descendants, through whom the seed of the serpent will be carried forward. Remember that Noah's original readers, the children of Israel, preparing to enter the Canaan, uh, the, God, the land that God had promised them, and they'll fight to take that land, but it's not just about taking the land for them. They know from this passage and others that God is commanding them to rid the land of the corruption that's in it by destroying their distant cousins, the Canaanites, who are wicked and idolatrous people. God will use them as his means of judgment on the wicked Canaanites because they're the enemies of God and the enemies of his righteousness. And in verse 27, Noah asked God to bless Japheth as well. May God enlarge Japheth. Let him grow in number and, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. May, may his people dwell with Shem's people. And we know this prophecy, don't we? We know this prophecy and this blessing. There are a people outside of Shem, outside of Israel, who are rightly related to Shem because they're rightly related to the seed of the woman. What do we call those people? Gentiles. Not only will Jews receive the blessing of God, but Gentiles will too. They'll be brought in and they'll be blessed. And when does this happen? Where do we see Gentiles believing in the righteousness of Israel's God and moving into a tent with them? Do we have any such accounts of anything on any scale in the Old Testament? No. It happens in the New Testament. Under the New Covenant, which is still God's one covenant purpose of redemption. This is what Paul describes over and over in his letters as the mystery to be revealed. The Gentiles too are being brought into the kingdom. Flip back to Ephesians chapter 2. We were there not too long ago in a sermon series. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Glance over to chapter 3, verse 6. Paul writes, This mystery is... That the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Hallelujah! Here, Noah is the prophet, the spokesperson for the destiny of nations. But Jesus is the determiner. The destiny of all nations, all peoples, all men is determined by their relationship to Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman. He is the determiner of the destiny of nations, and he is the ruler over all nations. 
There's one more question left to be answered about life in the post-flood world. Is the wages of sin still death? Is the wages of sin still death? And the answer is yes. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years. And he died. That's why we're not looking to Noah. Or any man. We're looking to Jesus. Our habit when we read Genesis chapter 9 about the flood and the covenant is to remember that God promised, he promised not to make a worldwide flood again. Noah got drunk, don't know why. Somebody got cursed, don't remember who. So let's move on to the important stuff. Like the New Testament. In truth, Genesis chapter 9 is all about Jesus. which is just how Noah would have it. Here in Genesis chapter 9, it's Jesus who is the ruler of creation and the one who brings the perfect image of God to human flesh. Jesus is the true possessor of the covenant who spares sinners from judgment and brings every spiritual blessing to his people. And Jesus is the final prophet of curse and blessing who determines the destiny of every single person based on their relationship with him. Dear friend, do you know this Jesus? Because he's the one who will determine your eternal destiny. You need to know him. You need the righteousness that he came to bring. You need God's image restored in you. Because the marred and ugly thing that you have become in your sin will never enter the presence of God, never receive the inheritance of the earth, not be protected from God's fiery wrath to come, not be blessed by the God of Shem. You will be destroyed. But here's Jesus. But here's Jesus saying, Come to me. It's not too late. His arms are open wide and he's pleading with you to come to him to have real and lasting peace. Through his word this morning. He's asking you now. Brothers and sisters, we're to look to Jesus just as we did when we first came to him. His word which has determined our destiny also defines our life. We know Jesus is the true image of God. And we need to seek it and pursue it and live it in this fallen world. We know Jesus is the one who rules forever. And we need to serve him as his priest kings on earth. I mean, what's our mandate? How does the mandate translate to us? It's to proclaim the gospel. That is the chosen means, his chosen means of possessing the world by the proclamation of the gospel, by the church advancing one soul at a time, and the gates of hell will not prevail against her till the glory of God fills the earth with redeemed sinners. And we know that we can share the gospel safe and secure 
knowing that God is not at war with us. He's hung his bow in the clouds, and he's on our side, and Jesus is with us to the end of the age. Let these truths from the very unlikely place of Genesis chapter 3 define Christ Fellowship Church. All that we are, all that we do, all that we say, all for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your good promises to us. We thank you for your saving promise to all who would place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ.